Hi, my name is Mangama Labuta. I'm a business consultant. I work for myself. I've worked in corporate for 10 years. But right now I'm just consulting for different businesses in uh, business development, growth, sales and into Africa strategy. Hi, my name is Wisdom Gakaka. I'm co-founder of Sarex Branding and Sarex Business and uh, founder of uh, Woodwears Flatpak Furniture. And uh, I'm just here to uh, give entrepreneurs and professionals uh, some uh, support and solutions. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Smanga and Wisdom. Thank you, Andile. Good to be here. Thanks, Andile. Good to be here. <laughs> well, you don't have to say exactly what he said. <laughs> Thanks, Andile. It's a pleasure to meet you. Cool, man. So listen, fellas, we're at Cyrix Branding, which is one part of the Cyrix business. Uh, we'll talk about that a little later on. Uh, I want us to start with what's on the wall here. And it says here, though the very best of machinery becomes obsolete, innovation and creativity is timeless and if you can imagine it, in this right in the center of the wall is the very first um, CPU that you own, I guess, right? Um, and it's it's one of those Apple ones. It's it's probably legendary at this point. It's probably a collector's item yeah, as well. Collector's item, yeah. So um, this is our first um, computer that we got in 2007. Obviously, it's obsolete right now. Couldn't be any slower. Uh, but it's beautiful. You know how. Apple is Apple, you know, they make masterpieces. So we put it up on the wall as part of our uh, memorabilia. You know, it shows a bit of our history, how far we've come, you know, and how that was such a, a milestone. I know we've got a couple of Macs around the office just lying around now, but, you know, that was the first one. It was a big, 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 big deal. So it just reminds us of, you know, you know, the, the, the original, you know, uh, the, the story. Was, Do you remember the year? Do you remember the year? That was 2007, you know, when we got it. You know, it was a pretty uh, useful tool that made us, you know, a decent amount of money to buy other Macs. So, yeah, it was definitely a good investment. Again, we're going to talk about your business, unpack that whole journey. Um, I like us starting with what you have on the wall and that little uh, nugget just because of where we are. We are Narare, our capital city, all three of us Zimbabwean. Um, I spent a good, you know, good eight years of my of my younger life living in this city and it's quite you know just to be back in this in this in this capacity is kind of surreal and sitting with you guys and so i really look forward to unpacking your story smanga you um you've pretty much worked for some of the gold standards of uh, zimbabwean enterprise and part of what i hope to learn from you through this conversation is you know just sort of glean wisdom uh distill some of the wisdom that you've that you've acquired uh, while working in those trenches, you know, working for those businesses. But yeah, so give us a sense of what you were doing most recently before you, you've decided to take a break to, to focus on some of your own projects uh, and then, you know, take us a little, back, a little bit back. All right. So just before I took uh, this break that I'm on, um, I was working for a telecoms company called Africom, uh, which is an IAP, ISP and uh, voice telecoms company i was working in sales and commercial new product development um, commercial management uh, and i was basically in charge of all the revenue generating business units but before that i've worked for you know four other different businesses and i've worked for two of the four biggest companies in zimbabwe um, being the telecoms giant econet wireless uh, and also being the 
diversified INSCO group. I, I worked with INSCO for slightly over two and a half years. For our South African listeners familiar with Bidvest, INSCO is pretty much the Zimbabwean equivalent in terms of like this massive diversified portfolio and and pretty much maybe every 10th dollar you spend in Zimbabwe is, is going to INSCO in some way. That kind of vibe, right? Definitely. INSCO is uh, very big and very diversified in that they are in industries that you would ordinarily interact with on a day-to-day basis. They're in distribution, they're in FMCG, they run the biggest um, fast food retail business here. They run the Nando's franchise, they run the Ocean Basket franchise. So really, in a way, it's like a bid vest, very diversified. Um, They also do real estate, they are also involved in food manufacturing with the national national foods which is the biggest food manufacturer in zimbabwe so insco is one of those i think it was the second company to reach a billion valuation on the zimbabwe stock exchange so by and that's like billion oh, is that is that market cap or revenue market cap market cap on the zimbabwe stock exchange and then you also work for econet which is well on its way to being like a billion dollar business in revenue terms Definitely, Econet are almost there. They've just unbundled and formed another company, an offspring of that called Cassava. Uh, so what 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 that does is it it makes them two big companies as if they're not big enough already, and they've got their own reasons. But it definitely is one of the blue chip uh, companies on the Zimbabwe Stock Exchange. So we're going to talk about that wisdom, dude. The first time I met you, so I I know wisdom because of of you, Sma and I go up way back. Back to varsity days, you of course went to Zulu's University, I went to Heldeberg College, um, and we got connected actually via my folks, but uh, we stayed in touch. And then I met Wisdom, it's probably a decade now, and you you probably owned the computer that was on the wall at the time. Yeah? Yeah, um, that was uh, 2007, I think we had just started our business. And uh, I guess you were like literally skating buses between Arare and Johannesburg to get your partnerships up and and get your business running. What was then essentially just um, what a, a branding you were you were looking you you were you were branding businesses at the time. Yeah, uh, we started off as a uh, well. The original Cyric story is that it's actually a business services company, and then uh, obviously the branding was the you know low hanging fruit. You know, that we started off with, uh, we went back and forth to Joburg. We had suppliers there, um, getting our, you know, uh, raw materials or whatever. When you say services, what do you mean? Uh, services, I mean, uh, services to support entrepreneurs, right? So basically what we wanted to do was set up a company that would support entrepreneurs, professionals and teams. Uh, through services such as accounting, bookkeeping, uh, office space, serviced offices, uh, that kind of setup, right? But obviously, that was capital intensive. And super ahead of its time because, I mean, it was barely trending in the way co-working and and those kind of things are trending now in South Africa, never mind here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I picked up on it from a friend who actually worked for such a company in the UK. But uh, before that, uh, my co-founder and I, Annabelle, uh, actually met at a company that was an outsourcing company for a telecoms service provider. So basically what this company did was it uh, did all the accounting and bookkeeping, credit control on behalf of uh, NetOne, which is a local uh, telecoms company. So that structure, we basically said, look, why not do this for more than just one company? Give uh, other companies support, give them an admin team, give them an accountant, give them, you know, a marketing team, you know, so that they can focus on their core business. 
be it trucking, be it uh, web development, you focus on your core business and we do the admin side. So that was the original idea, of course, capital intensive, because obviously we needed the infrastructure for the, for the setup. But the easy, easier route was to uh, pursue the, the branding, which we had a couple of contacts in South Africa. We started off with corporate gifts and, you know, the little trinkets uh, to ensure that, you know, we had that cash flow to then finance this bigger idea. And so I would have met you on one of those missions where you were literally on one of the cheaper buses on the roads those days so you could get to Joburg as cheaply as possible. I think I remember putting you on to some of my friends in the business, printers and and embossers, things like that. And then you'd rush back and, and obviously perform some arbitrage because, well, your prices were better than people here. And then... You know, fast forward to what is now to this business, which is, I think, still your flagship in the sense I think it's probably the most well-known aspect of what Cyrex does, the branding side. Talk me how you you transitioned from essentially being a middleman for those kind of deals to a producer. Yeah. Look, from the very beginning for us, we wanted control. Maybe that's just the type of person that I am. But having control for your clients means that you can become innovative. If you don't have control, you can't be innovative. There's just no way. Being a reseller just simply means that you're passing on a product that someone else gets the opportunity to innovate with. Uh, and of course, uh, for the local market, it might not be relevant, you know, that particular product in its, in its current form. But uh, being a producer means that you can get the raw material and actually craft something that is a relevant solution for the client. So for us, um, over the years, we were obviously investing in machinery and uh, technical know-how and the technology to ensure that uh, we could service our local market uh, in a relevant way, right? Obviously, it was, it was not easy considering that, you know, there was no local financing, no VC, no angel investors, you know, no government grants, no government grants, you know, it was really working with the finances that you, that you generated from your sales, you know, so um, we were discussing yesterday and I was just telling you that, you know, our reinvestment strategy is quite radical simply because we know that there isn't that access. I mean, of course, now that access is, is opening up, but our background just shows that, look, we can do it ourselves and we opt to do so, you know, and minimize our, our risk. You said something yesterday that really stayed with me, which was working in Zimbabwe as an entrepreneur forces you to listen to the market in a way that other people perhaps don't have to, aren't forced to, aren't inclined to. Here, it's like literally an existential issue. Yeah, look, um, I think uh, Zimbabwe in its form, many will disagree with me, is a huge incubator, you know, which means that you, uh, you have the ability to grow your business organically, you know, without huge external threat or influence. Um, and actually craft something that, you know, will work or will not work. It's really a place where you can uh, try this out, doesn't work, try it out tomorrow, and ensure that, you know, at the end of the day, you have something that is relevant to the, to the target audience. And also because there is no safety net, you are making calculated bets that I think are informed by a certain level of business sobriety or economic sobriety that I think is lacking in the quote-unquote mainstream global startup movement, which is, listen, I'm going to take risks, but they'll be calculated because I can afford for things to not go as I plan, but I can't afford for things to leave me in a position where I can't pay rent. So I kind of have to, in a way, like forces you to be far more scientific 
about the risks you take and the ones you're willing to take, the ones you have to take, and think about hedging in a way maybe some part of the world doesn't think about as an unnecessary prudence. Yeah. Organic growth simply means that your business informs you of its next requirement. You know, I mean, if we got some sort of funding, a million dollars or whatever, we'd have all these delivery vehicles, we'd have a financial director, we'd have HR department, all of these things without an approved market. But when you build something organically, it gives you, you know, those uh, milestones to say that, look, our demand is so high and we need to service this particular market. So we need an extra vehicle to service that particular side. So there's minimal wastage, if you get what I'm saying. You know, and also, like you're saying, it's more scientific because you're literally using your money and uh, you have to bet on it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, whereas if you have funding, I mean, look, you can somewhat afford to lose the money uh, because, you know, you don't know, you know, what it actually takes to make a million dollars in the first place. But all of a sudden, I've got a million dollars. So just the organic growth allows you to have, you know, that uh, more in-depth uh, knowledge of the business, how it operates, what it requires and at what time. I think that's a big, big advantage. So let's apply what Wisdom and I are talking about, uh, Smart, to your corporate experience at InSchool. We're talking about this in the car earlier today, how by your estimation, InSchool wouldn't enjoy this you know, significant and impressive regional footprint it currently enjoys in what some people consider really difficult markets. Break down what you were telling me in the car about the science of what wisdom is talking about, how it might have applied or might continue to apply in even a big enterprise like InScore or even Econet. I think the thing that cuts across uh, the board from uh, startup to mid-size to corporate in what wisdom is building here is the environment. What happens on the macros affects everyone, the small business and the big business alike. And I totally agree with Wisdom to say that the environment here is a big incubator. It it builds character, be it in an entrepreneur or in a corporate manager or in a conglomerate. So when you are coming from a base like Zimbabwe and you've made it through the years, 10 years and you're a profitable business and you've got solid fundamentals and you've got a business model that works in Zimbabwe. When you go out into Africa, you are bound to succeed because chances are very slim that it's going to be a worse-off operating environment in Zimbabwe. I mean, right now, companies are reporting, we are in December, companies are reporting financials. And when I read the financials in, in the newspaper, I ask myself, wait a minute, what currency is this? Is this USD? Is this uh, money in the bank? Is this? Yeah. So before you say, wow, they made so much profit, relative to what? You know, we have to draw some base here. So it's so unpredictable, it's so difficult to operate in Zimbabwe so much that when you go anywhere else, it almost feels like it's a walk in the park. I'll give you one one example. One thing that you cannot do from Zimbabwe right now is to remit payments offshore, outside. So Wisdom has got a business is there to buy and import machinery from China, from South Africa, and from Europe. How he does that is the entrepreneurial ingenuity that is only found in Zimbabwe. So if I recruit a British uh a British graduate and place him to run a corporate in Zimbabwe. Six months is going to be a very long time for him to run a corporate in Zimbabwe because he's never experienced this. So what, what I give this environment is that exactly what Wisdom says. It's a school of hard knocks. It's an incubator for anyone who's going to go anywhere else. It's a very good base to, to start from. And then there's one thing you, you were very humble about in your intro. You 
well, I suppose you didn't leave it out conspicuously, but you didn't mention the fact that you were you inhabited the C-suite at at your last gig at Africom. You were, you know, invited into the boardroom quite literally. At, at, I mean, someone your age, like thirty-two, in a fairly ageist culture we have in in Zimbabwe. I mean, in, in Zimbabwe, I mean, age is is uh, equated with wisdom a lot of the time, and no pun intended. No pun intended at all. <laughs> Not at all. And I suppose, uh, look, it's a cultural thing. I think that just cuts across society in a massive way from the way perhaps those of us who are churched and, and are part of like religious organizations, I think it, it's prevalent in that culture. It's prevalent in the way we're, we're socialized in school, in, in the way we think about seniority and hierarchy within organizations. It's certainly prevalent within government and politics. So I'm just trying to set the stage so that people understand what it kind of means. Because I'm, you know, you have listeners here going, "Well, 32 in, in you know, in a corporate boardroom, you know, C-suite. I mean, we, we've got that. Uh, yes, we get we get you Global North. We know that's not a, entirely a big deal in Global North or the West, but in Zimbabwe, it is a big deal. And I I say all of that just to sort of set up a, a question about the realities of day to day being the entrepreneurial engine for a company as large and as entrenched as Africom one. So give us some insight on that. And then give us also a sense of some of the wins around being nimble enough in that position to to create products for a market that needs you to be attentive to its needs. So um, I guess making sea level in Zimbabwe corporate, I'd say it's, it's it's a difficult thing or rather an uncommon thing. I didn't do anything extra to make C-level. Like I said, I was headhunted to. Look, you're really talented and you, your results speak for themselves. So I won't let you do that. Like, no, the, you're an operator, bro. Like, but yeah. But but what you what you immediately find when you get there is that you're working with um, corporate culture that believes that the older someone is, the more knowledgeable they are. That comes from our African heritage to say the older are, are wiser. So when you come and you are in a technological company that is fast paid paced in an industry where you you have to have your pulse on the ground all the time and you propose these new solutions, the thing that you face the most is resistance. All the way up to boardroom, there is always resistance because you get this phrase, we have always done it this way, right? But ICT is definitely not the field where you want to have, we have always done it this way type of mentality. So my everyday struggle was to get the team around me, the whole executive, all the way to the board at speed, at pace with what the world was doing in terms of ICT solving problems for African people. That's one. Secondly, what you see as... Um, prevailing in in the west in terms of uh, technology the base is the same we all use fiber optic cable to connect that's that's everywhere we all use 4g that's everywhere we use lte but the difference becomes the problem that you are solving so when you see in africa telecommunications has come to solve things like banking which it doesn't solve in america you find that mobile money is big in Kenya, South Africa, and Zimbabwe simply because it is easier for someone to get a cell phone than it is to get a property to use as proof of residence at the bank. Yeah, what was that? What were the numbers? 102, what was the penetration? Yeah, so the tele-density is 102% in Zimbabwe. That means there's more cell phones than people who should have cell phones anyway. That's because people like Wisdom have got two phones, right? <laughs> but but what it simply indicates to is that we are quite an advanced nation in terms of um, mobile phone penetration. Our internet penetration is sitting sitting at sixty eight percent thereabouts, which is actually I, I say this carefully, but regionally 
even thinking about the rest of the continent, it's flipping high, yeah? No, 68 is higher than the continental average. Uh, it also comes from the fact that Zim is really small geographically, so our fiber cable runs border to border quite easily. And also comes from the fact that we've got a population that pretty much switched on uh, highest literacy rate in Africa. So people want smartphones, people want to download, people want to read and research. So that has helped the broadband penetration surge forward without telecoms company doing a lot of investing in that front, right? And then the advent of cheaper 3G, 4G enabled handsets from China and then grey handsets that are also imported in masses help the company obtain higher levels of broadband penetration. But my point is that when you get this, this is just the platform. What you then need to do as a telecom zone, as an ICT business, is to address societal needs using those platforms. Right. What what is ICT doing for healthcare? What is ICT doing for access to information? What is ICT doing for education, for example? So when we said at Africa, we realized that the game is no longer about connectivity because everyone who is supposed to be connected in Zimbabwe is already connected. So instead of getting into price holes and things like that, we decided to add uh, B-level, C-level products on top of the infrastructure. So that means security for the data, that means warehousing, that means uh, data warehousing, business analytics, uh, bus- data processing, that means offshore storage, uh, disaster recovery sites for banks, storing things in the cloud and things of that nature. So one of the products that, uh, just to, to, to respond directly to your questions, that I, I spearheaded development of was... Um, a product that came out of a problem we had with one of our clients. Uh, we developed a product that was a bandwidth manager because we had a client who was always, you know, tapping out of their bandwidth every other day and they complained that bandwidth is slow. So we put in a server to just monitor their usage and realize that there were, you know, attachment students, interns who would come with laptops ready with torrents and it would download the whole day. One user would download 25 gigabytes and then they would throttle network and stifle everyone else and people cannot be productive. So we realized that if we can look into their network using our own server, maybe we could build a product out of this server and start selling it to network administrators as a network and bandwidth manager. And so we did a pilot run with our first client. They loved it. And then we added on the back end of it um, data analytics. It would analyze traffic. It would filter traffic. We also then built a firewall in there. So we're selling a three-in-one, literally, a bandwidth manager, a traffic monitor, and a firewall. And then you created a casing and made it like your own. Definitely. So we went into China. This was just a server, really, a, five, a Core i5 server. <laughs> but we went to China, got a mode with our logos branded, and we launched a product. We went to town with it, and then the product is on the market and doing well right now. But you know what, you guys, this, this, this now. You see, this is why I have you guys sitting here. We go by oversimplification as the enemy. I get so fussy about the definition of innovation. When people try and assume it or project a, a definition of innovation that isn't rooted in value, in problem solving, in real people, getting real utility out of, you know what I mean, out of ingenuity being applied and channeled correctly. Because I feel like that's where innovation lives. And 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 for some people are like, well, we've got that in Sweden. And that's not the freaking point, is it? Yeah. Look, uh, I think, um, especially in Africa, we need uh, Africa-focused solutions. Uh, technology being great won't always work here. Africa-focused uh, solutions will actually uh, have a broader-based uptake than a copy-and-paste sort of uh, approach. You know, there's so many things locally that we require now, you know, that will solve the problem that we have now. You know, as much as we want to uh, go forward and conquer the world and be global, we have 
local challenges that still need to be met. I mean, our economy is uh, 13 million people, and that's uh, by any means a, a, a good number of people. You know, manage to serve those people, and you'll have a, a good business, you'll have good solutions. The advantage of being in Africa, or in Zimbabwe in particular, is that you're able to give the current solution and maybe copy and paste the next best thing. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, so you're actually able to borrow really good ideas that might be one or two years old in, in more established markets and then still like make them really work. And in fact, you're able to prime your market and massage it to readiness. Exactly. So obviously when it comes to consumer education, it's going to take a bit longer because, you know, the uptake will be slow. You know, you have more of laggards than pioneers. You know, when you get the 1K study that has um, taken up this particular solution, and it's working, everyone wants to jump on it. By that time, you've invested in that particular solution, so you're ready to serve. This is like a brilliant segue to what I want to ask you about because in knowing you and Smanga and just following your story, you've done exactly what you're saying with your business. So to, to, for some context, this gentleman services brands like Spa, Lions, Telesel, Africom. I'm looking on the wall because it's just this wall of incredible past client achievements and stuff. But I mean, NetBank's a client, Toyota, Mazda. So if you see any 3D signage anywhere in Zimbabwe from any of these clients at their retail locations and the signage, it's basically thanks to Cyrix that's done that using cutting edge technology that is pretty much ahead of its time in terms of what some of your local competitors are able to produce now relative to say more advanced places like South Africa for this particular thing. And how you deliver on that is by a year ago looking forward and going, I need to reinvest in this area so that I'm in a position to produce and not just be a middleman for established businesses in this space in South Africa. So talk me through the science of that thinking, you know, and how, again, we walked past the sign and I said, did you make that? You said no. And then I said, oh, it looks like something done by laser. And he's like, actually, no, laser's really old and <laughs> no one does that anymore. I mean, look, uh, when it comes to our investment strategy, it's obviously informed by, you know, the pace of our clients' uptake. You obviously have to look at, you know, what will it really take to educate our customer to move from this particular solution to the next, right? And timing is important because um, you remember you want to avoid that wastage or that that lag that will, you know, uh, make your your investment redundant, so to speak. Um when it comes to production, we're really big on production and, you know, control of, you know, the entire uh, process. And uh, when we do our investment, what informs us is, you know, obviously uh, global trends and also local relevance, like, the, like we've just discussed. You know, it's, uh, it's very important for us to not only uh, invest in ourselves, but in the future of the brands of our clients, right? So when we invest in ourselves, we're like, look, where is our client's brand going? You know, we want to get there before they realize they need to be there, you know, so that when they realize that they need to be there, we literally they're waiting to say that, look, we've got this particular solution. I'll give you an example. Um, MBCA was a local um, subsidiary of the NetBank group, right? And uh, NetBank then was coming into the company, into the country to sort of rebrand, you know, uh, literally three months before that we had gotten new machinery that was required for that particular project. The client came in and did a site visit and like, hey, you guys got this machine? We're like, yeah, we've had it for ages, you know, but 
really we had it for three months and secrets coming out now <laughs> you know we had it for three months and uh it was an integral part of that particular project yes because netbank's a massive sort of financial services brand based in south africa and as former clients i've had i can tell you they are up there with some of the most fussy, most exacting yeah. clients when it comes to their brand and how projects are executed in, in the sort of brand space, not least shop fronts or, you know, the bank shop fronts and so on and so forth. So NetBank walks in and you're ready because they want to roll like they roll everywhere else and they're not prepared to, to cut corners here. And if they need to, they'll work with people back in South Africa, but no, they can work with you. Yeah, you see, so when it comes to, you know, such a project um you obviously need to have the technical know-how you know they're very specific as to what they want color values sizing ratios placement etc you know and as much as you know it's a it's a huge task for us we're also learning a lot and also applying our knowledge to other local clients of course not in the same industry but that knowledge is invaluable because now you have a an international standard that you can apply to you know your local other clients you know, to ensure that they also have cutting-edge brands that can stand, you know, the test of time. So definitely it's something that, you know, we hold dearly. When we have a client, we, if anything, we are learning. The great thing about our business is that each client is unique in their approach, in their style, in their execution, you know. So it, it keeps us on our toes, so to speak. Now you're applying all that wisdom to your own brand uh, in the in the form of Woodwiz, this flat pack furniture stuff. So I walked past you know some of your samples outside. You guys are basically using the same machinery, applying similar t techniques and technologies. What to take on IKEA basically? Like what the heck? So you know, talk me through the the science of innovation in that respect. How to apply what you learn from one thing into what in this case is quite clearly a departure from everything else you had in mind for for Cyrix in the, in the beginning? It's really a full utilization of our capabilities. We do have the machinery already, and uh, it's really just rolling out something that can add more value to our clients. The Woodward's flat pack furniture serves a different market, but uh, primarily it serves our corporate clients through exhibition stands, corporate spaces, the sales offices, receptions, etc. that can be color-coded and customized to their specifications. So uh, as much as it seems like furniture is a totally different um I think I was thrown by the one I saw outside, yeah. which is like a, a, a sort of kid kids' room bed, which is great. It's pretty. Uh, but I was like, what, what's the link there? Yeah, so basically what happened with um, that particular line. So Woodwiz is the more of the domestic line that we offer individuals, right? Uh, our clients are largely corporates, but we always have the, the client that would say, look, uh, I need, you know, some wallpaper on my daughter's bedroom. I need some text. I need some 3D letters on my daughter's bedroom with a name or the nice scripture, some motivational text on my wall in my in my office at my house. So we we felt that having the same brand that does the corporate and the domestic is a bit of a mismatch. So Woodwiz basically came in to service that particular market and servicing you know the more accessory type of solution for individuals. So when it comes to the the furniture, we practically can make anything that is furniture based, whether it's beds chairs, little tables that can be obviously upscaled and tweaked to, you know, obviously the, the corporate market. It's all really using the same machinery and upscaling and full uh, utilization of the, the assets that we do have. So 
my brother made an assertion the other day. I was home, uh, my elder brother, and uh, shout out to you, bro. Uh, he said something that really stuck with me, which is, you know, Zim, Zim is rough. You guys have said as much. It, it's not for the faint of heart. It's, it's a challenging market, no doubt about that. But my brother reckons that it's probably most challenging for people who don't produce. In fact, he reckons that if you produce, and he's he using produce to cover a number of different aspects, from, from my mother who, and my, my dad who, who farm onions and have just harvested their, their crop and have, have uh, you know, marketed it to Choppies, a supermarket chain, and you know, small-scale activities like that in terms of producing to, to corporate animals like, like you, Smanga, who produce in the sort of enterprise context, to people like Wisdom who literally produce and buy machinery and invest heavily in being able to produce and ramping up their capacity. So my brother reckons for people who produce, like there are very few places in the world you'd want to be aside from Zimbabwe. I mean, in terms of the value you can create, um, perhaps not in the short term, because that's hard for everybody, but certainly in the long term if you, if you sort of stick with what's happening here. What do you make of that notion? And how how would you say it has or hasn't applied to your your journey as a as a corporate entrepreneur and and an on, your ongoing career as an entrepreneur? Okay. Um. First, I definitely agree with Nda in that this is a producer's market, and I want to tie that with what Wisdom said. Wisdom said you wanted to have control. So in this market, if you're a producer, you've got control. What do I mean? You control your distribution chain. You control the value and pricing. You control even the pricing that the end customer gets of your product, regardless of how many stops or other value added has along the way. So being a producer is most advantageous because you control those those factors. And what then happens is that when the shifty sense of the Zim economy do what they do, you have the option to either hold onto product if it's storable and it appreciates in value until such a time when you can dispose or hold on to the production, just keep your raw materials until such a time as the factors allow for cheaper or optimum production, or ramp up production and take advantage of market dynamics, or produce for markets outside Zimbabwe, which is the most ideal situation right now because we are a net importer and government is on this drive to promote anything that can be sold outside Zimbabwe and you earn your hard currency which is fetching a premium on the market. So that's the most advantageous position in the value chain is to be the producer and not just a reseller or you know a distributor because when you're a distributor, you do not control your input price because your supplier can come up with a certain price, can demand a certain currency, can demand certain terms, and you, you, you are at their mercy. But when you're a producer, you actually can control and you have got room to maneuver and adapt to the market to always take a position that best suits you as a, as a business. So I think, yeah, Zimbabwe is definitely favoring producers. It's going to be like that for, for a long time. And Zimbabwe is also not f- for the short term. If you are in it, you better be in it for the long haul. Yeah, I mean, speak more to that because we, we had a chat about this earlier as well, which is the misplaced expectation of very well-heeled individuals and organizations who come to Zimbabwe with the expectation that they can swoop in, realize value, and swoop out. Or people who come here and it turns out a lot harder than they than they hoped or expected, and then prematurely sort of pull away from the market. You pointed to some examples in corporate of people who have bucked that trend and how you know the market has rewarded them or how their patience has been rewarded. 
Okay, there, there's been a few stories, uh, fast-paced, uh, you know, of, of so almost like overnight success, but that is not the norm. So let's do a word pun. The unpredictability of our market comes from the very fact that anything goes at any day. Policy can change on any day. So if you are coming into Zimbabwe from somewhere else and you look at it on a timeline, fair and fine, you might come in and do a quick deal and make a quick buck and go, but in terms of sustainability, it's not always going to be like that. What happens is like right now, players in the fuel industry are making a quick buck, have huge margins, and if they can push volume, the better. But it's not going to be like that come June 2019, for example. So what Zimbabwe needs is an approach that builds into the forecast, the unpredictability, the you know the ups and downs that are going to come, and then you stay like that. I know regional businesses that came into fast food to compete with Insco. And at the first header, which was the currency crisis we had starting in winter this year, they closed shop, you know. And then you find these businesses like Insco who've been around since the early 80s, you know, they, they know that it's, it's just turbulence. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stop, you know. It's going to stop and it's going to be business as usual. And there are going to be opportunities where they also benefit largely. We, we had uh, times when uh, soft drink manufacturers could charge what they want and get away with it, you know. But that phase also came and went. We had a time where bankers were the best guys in town because, you know, they were trading on the money market, they were trading currency, and they were the richest guys in town. But just like anything else, Zim is never certain, so you need to be in it for the long haul. Write out the difficult times, and you certainly enjoy the better times that come after that. It's interesting you mentioned the you know, the sort of petroleum industry, you know, it's quite interesting to see the brands that are betting on brand and experience and still investing in that even when they don't have to. I mean, after all, they've got fuel that people need and people are clearly willing to queue for it when it's in short supply. And and frankly, wherever it is, people go fetch it, regardless of how good the service is, how much has been invested in the sort of experience. But uh, it's quite interesting to see, to your point, certain brands in, in our markets, I'd say Zuva maybe, uh, Trek, for example, continue to invest really heavily at a time when they don't really need to in a premium sort of petrol uh, petrol station experience. And I suppose to your point, there are at least four or five brands that were about five, 10 years ago, larger than them, local and otherwise in that space that aren't here anymore because maybe they didn't approach it the same way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it applies both for large corporates, SMEs, entrepreneurs, and startups. The way you treat your customers in difficult times determines how they're going to look at you when things are normal. So if your customer care goes out of the door simply because the product you're selling is in short supply, when it's in abundance, customers are not going to shop with you. They're going to go wherever they think they're going to get a better experience. So customer experience is not determined by the macro environment. People still want good customer experience even when it's a difficult environment. That way you can leverage on your brand equity even when times are better. So you find that those corporates who are doing what they can to go the extra mile in difficult times, people will still be with them even when things normalize. I go into retail. We've got uh, South African retail giant pick and pay here. They are doing well here. And even when things started to be shaky, pick and pay did not increase prices willy-nilly. They did not close shop like what others did. And you know what? Things are normalizing now. Where are people shopping? Pick and pay. 
you've been nodding and and amening to in the corner here yeah what do you reckon look i agree that uh you know uh, times like this is when you solidify your market and you actually make headway you know we've got uh, some local brands such as pro brands we started back in 2007-2008 probably the most difficult time in the country pro brands uh for those who don't know what what do they do basically offers uh, you know your commodities your rice your uh fast moving consumer goods and uh they basically uh started off by um repackaging imported goods until they started their own brand now they're producers uh in the market so they started off as uh, importers and repackaging at a time when there were lots of shortages uh, lots of price hikes they were basically serving parts of the community with uh, hampers basically and then they realized look why can't we stick our brand on this particular um, product line and then um, now they've gotten to a point where they are now extending that line to production and uh, yeah they've just been um, bought over by insco as well you know <laughs> insco is now um, a part of uh, pro brands or pro brands now part of insco whichever way you look at it but it's something that 10 years ago did not exist you know a business that did not exist 10 years ago exists now you look at the likes of trick zura these companies have long term strategies and long term plans for the economy and for the country investment in brand eh that's another thing where it's like um you know it's so annoying uh, when when i see this across the continent where it's like the assumption that because markets are relatively underdeveloped there's a perception that consumers in those markets aren't as sophisticated as as parts of the quote unquote developed world the assumption then that you know brand doesn't matter investments in in sort of building trust don't matter couldn't be further from the truth because it's ingrained in us as africans to build trust through relationship investment in brand investment in you know that brand equity is important because your brand will carry you in the tough times as well um i remember going to pizza inn you know which is one of the in score brands and they didn't have boxes you know so you had to bring your little lunch box or container and then they'll serve you that that pizza they didn't close they didn't close they didn't close they didn't have chips that serve you rice you know you want chicken and chips and like no we don't have uh, potatoes so you can have some rice so when you see a brand going through that they are sure and they are determined and they have conviction about where they are and what they're doing and right now the rewards are paying off it's clear to see they're able to duplicate their brand across the continent with little or no hassle compared to where they've been so it's really is training ground like smangawa saying for you know the 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 region and the and the continent there've been brands that were you know if it weren't for tenacious forward thinking entrepreneurs and sort of corporate leaders in zimbabwe their brands that would have since left but there are people who have put themselves on the line i'm aware there's a story of that nature behind why pepsi is in this market and killing it at the moment you know at least giving you know giving coca cola a massive run of their money in a in a market they literally were non-existent here you know 10 12 years ago um yeah 3 years ago 3 years ago pepsi literally was non-existent now producing now producing they've just set up a plant uh in our industrial areas and uh they basically came in and just grabbed the market here i mean you go to any store right now you'll find pepsi you won't find coca cola or coca cola products of course um they struggle to find bonaco even the water <laughs> you obviously when you get into into the market you have a more aggressive approach 
and uh, I guess that's the, to the disadvantage of you know the more established traditional brands and you know doing business the way it's always been done. I guess um, Coca Cola is a big brand. Maybe they can afford to to do this, but we'll we'll find out. You know what I mean? We will find out. I mean, the urban legend goes, you know, there's a very big businessman turned politician who literally put his own money out to induce Pepsi in and said, listen, I'll buy buy it into this country because our market needs it. Coke needs competition. And literally, if it wasn't for someone putting their neck on the line and again i stand to be corrected but this is an urban legend that comes from people i i I trust and there's stories of that nature around certain brands that might have come from south africa that were on their way out like oh this is too much for us and people going listen we'll just leave leave your brand where it is we'll face the the fire for as long as we need to you trust us and it's brands that are now going we're so glad we didn't move out but uh, the the coca-cola story is very interesting because we all know the biggest transaction that happened in that industry where ab InBev bought sab miller uh, that's the world's biggest brewery buying the world's second biggest brewery now coca-cola in zimbabwe is produced distributed by delta beverages delta beverages is owned by sab miller of south africa SAB Miller has been bought by AB InBev. AB InBev is a Pepsi producer and Coca-Cola is in competition to Pepsi. Would AB InBev allow their subsidiary to continue making Coca-Cola when they own the Pepsi brand? Oh, snap! I suppose you've just thrown a spanner in the works. So what are you basically saying is, what, Pepsi and Coca cousins? Well, there's been a marriage. There's been a recent marriage now. <laughs> Sorry? They're stepbrothers. Stepbrothers, yeah. So that recent marriage all puts, the, you know, an interesting twist into things. You know, right now, we, we went for lunch and we had Pepsi products because we couldn't find Coca-Cola products. Who knows why they are not producing as much as they should be producing? Who knows why they are not on the market? We really don't know, but it's definitely something interesting to say. Are they in it for the long run? Are they going to keep fighting for this market or are they going to just say, you know what, we, we lose this market to Pepsi? That is fascinating. You see now, you see, this is why you guys are on the show. So guys, at this point, everyone's phone's buzzing, but bear with me. We'll have just a few more minutes with you guys and then we'll let you guys go. Arare beckons because you guys have things to do and I've got to play to cash. But um, I want to talk about how Cyrex has returned to its roots in a sense. Like you had this vision, which is just... Yeah, I get goosebumps thinking about it because I actually remember the Baking Hot Sun in Joburg where I first met you and and I was hustling, you were hustling. Smanga was hustling less than both of us, but I think he was hustling too or whatever. And, and we were just three young Zimbabweans with a dream. And, and here we are, you know, yesterday I got the chance to walk through Cyrix Business Center. You've got an incredible model for essentially creating service office environments, um, catering to the needs of Arare's emerging SMEs. You're in one of the tallest buildings in Arare, one of the most recognizable modern buildings uh, that have come up. And it was completed just in time for the downturn, the economic downturn that saw the flight of corporate from Zimbabwe, certainly from the most expensive venues in the CBD. And... You started biding your time because you you recognized even then that at some point that would be the seed for helping you go back to what you had initially envisaged uh, envisaged uh, Cyrix to become, and you've started to act on that. So, t- so I, I hope I've created a, a sufficient sort of uh, intro for you to launch into how all this came together. Something that, uh, like I said earlier, was really on our initial vision. 
you know, obviously we had sort of parked it. The vision never changed. Strategy obviously changed. Of course, we're going to, so we're still going to do all the things that we want to do. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Timing is important, like you've rightfully said, you know, and, um, there has been a lot of, uh, corporate flight, uh, both individual and actual organizations, whole organizations. Uh, you know, leaving the country, which has left us with opportunity. You know, Smanga will tell you any day that, look, opportunities are washing in Harare. I mean, we we, we reference Zuva, the, the petroleum company, which essentially has built its, has has basically launched itself off the back of the business that BP forsook. Exactly. So you've got such cases where the international corporate, the model doesn't uh, recognize, uh, you know, the way Zimbabwe operates. <laughs> I'm saying that lightly. <laughs> recognize. We don't recognize this. We're not sure what this is. Could this be a business model? No, we are leaving. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I don't know what Barclays was on, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's sort of on, on the same tip. You know, Barclays also left Africa. And uh, I guess, you know, Africa is a, it, it's a different creature. It's a different animal. But uh, that being said, you know, we saw the opportunity in the CBD with all this flight that, you know, there were a lot of um, uh, vacant offices, vacant space, you know, and it was an opportune time for us to go in and occupy certain spaces and break them up for the entrepreneur and the SME and the professional uh, in that particular space. You know, um, we've got a huge SME economy. You know, the economy is largely driven by, by SMEs. You know, even when it comes to corporates, uh, corporates are largely financed by SMEs, you know, because corporates don't pay up front. So the SMEs literally dig into their pockets to make sure that they supply a particular product. So they're literally keeping the economy afloat. Um, they need space. In Zimbabwe, the venue still matters. Like it's, it's, uh, in South Africa, certainly, um, to a much greater degree, there's a, there's a flexibility around being able to work from home or a home office and you've got fiber to the home and, and all this flexibility. But in Zimbabwe, it actually does kind of matter where you are, what your address is, where does the courier drop things off? You know, can I park my car and come visit you? Inspections are still a regular thing. A lot of your contracts are subject to people coming to visit your your premises, you know, you're visiting your factory and things like that. Um, due diligence, old school, right? Yeah, old school. You know, uh, the corporate identity is, is still very important. You know, that image of, you know... A projected image. Yeah, the projected image of establishment, you know, is very important, obviously, because now we, because we are largely SMEs, obviously you get a good number of rogue SMEs, you know, that will let, let down clients. We all have a cousin. Yeah, we all have a cousin or an uncle that has let down someone, you know. So that is, that due diligence, diligence is very important. That's why that corporate identity and venue is very important. You know, um, I, you know why I'm also saying this in terms of the context of our listeners? Because they're like, okay, so how original is this conversation you're having? I mean, services offices, service offices are a thing. Co-working is a trend all over the world. How is this innovation? And I'm like, guys, you don't understand. Like, you need to walk a mile in people's shoes. You need to sort of uh, try as best you can to marinate your mind in the realities of a certain market so you understand where it's coming from. And you'll start to understand just how weighty the proposition of a, a dude I was on the streets of Joburg with 10 years ago, like literally like waiting to catch his Eagle liner back to Zimbabwe. Like the, the, I mean, the probability of that guy being able to follow through and, and basically take over three floors in what is one of the highest rise buildings in Harare. Like for me, like it's really important that people get this context. 
Yeah, look, um, the story is a bit surreal. You know, for me, I tell it to myself and sometimes don't believe it, you know, but it's real. And uh, 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 these are things that have actually happened. So, I mean, you take over one floor. So it starts with the floor, though, right? Yeah, it starts with the floor. And um, obviously, the uptake is huge. You know, you've got different requirements. So again, I was telling you about, you know, the organic growth. You know, your client or your prospective tenant informs you of their requirement. So you end up giving them the solution to their particular requirement. So you go into a next floor. Your next floor is stru- structured slightly differently. The next floor is structured uh, slightly differently so that at the end of the day, you have something that someone can use. Yeah, so the, the, the relevant solution is important in ensuring that your next phase has a ready market. You know, so it's easy to do in, a, uh, in an economy where you can build organically again, you know, because your customer informs you of the requirement. So you literally start with a with a floor. You approach the building's owners. That yeah. this building is owned and managed by a pretty large holding company. Yeah. That at this point is, I'd like to imagine, a little bit embarrassed that a, a building with this level of prestige is standing empty, a little gun shy, and they're like, "You've got an idea to help us fill these floors, really? Okay, we'll give you one. Let's see what happens." And you fill that floor, you, you, you fill a second, and, and with each floor, you're doing thing, you're identifying a market that needs unique, uh, a unique solution uh, in terms of like the space, the, the packages, the affordability, the access, um, the privacy or lack thereof, the, the bespoke nature of the space. That's, that's all happening. So at which point do you reckon this might be a service you can package and take somewhere else? At which point in your mind as, a, as the sort of MD of this business, does that become a, an obvious next step? Yeah, look, um, well, firstly, I'll, st- I'll speak about, you know, our, our partners at this uh, development, Joiner, Joiner City. You see, this, this building was built by a Zimbabwean entrepreneur, you know, a Zimbabwean business, uh, businessman, right, who obviously understands entrepreneurship you know so it was an easy conversation in terms of the entrepreneurial pro- uh, approach as a consortium as a as a corporate you know you know there was little convincing it was clear look guys let's do it when we'll be able to package this for you know other property companies it's something that's in the pipeline uh, but uh, again it's uh, it's a model that we are tailoring for our particular environment you know, you get a lot of franchises, international franchises that, you know, offer the same thing, but they may not be flexible enough to, to service the local market, you know, which was a, a big thing for us to say that, look, uh, of course you can get a XYZ. <laughs> yes, we'll do it. I mean, please, that, yeah. we, were, we were planning to do that. They, 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 they definitely have the money to bring in any international franchise to, to come in and uh, fill those spaces. But they wanted something that was locally grown, locally um, crafted to, to be relevant to, you know, the local entrepreneur professional or the team. You know, something flexible enough to um, to tweak when you have the downtimes, when you have the uptime, when the economy shifts, something that you can tweak. You know, uh, when you have a franchise, it's very difficult for you to be able to to actually report back and say, hey, guys, look, uh, this is what has happened. That trust will be, you know, shaken. It's something that we are rolling out, um, uh, planning on rolling out across the country and see what happens. All right, folks. I mean, that's all we have time for, literally. That's all we have time for, folks. I can't believe it. We're going to have to do this again. Uh, I can't wait to be back in Harare. I can't wait 
to connect with you guys because you're back and forth between you know Joburg and uh, and and Arare, you know. But certainly, this I think has been as much a treat for me as it has been for our listeners. Smanga, there's so many things that I want to ask you about and even have to talk to you about, but I have a feeling we're going to reveal those. Some of those things are going to organically be revealed to our listeners in due course come 2019. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave it here for now. Gentlemen, Smanga Matabuta, Wisdom Kakaka. No, you guys have been amazing. Shout out to you, Arare, you beauty. <laughs>